12, verses 1 to 11. We've been working our way through the book of John. We're approaching uh, the end, uh, yet we still have a bit more to go. But this is coming into the end of Jesus's uh, three years ministry. And we are entering into the, the last few days in, uh, before Jesus uh, would be crucified. So, reading in verse 1, chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. This is God's word. So, uh, we've been working through this series, we're calling it Signs of the King, and in John 20, Jesus says this, it says, so John says this, now Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these things, the things that John has written for us, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so at Cornerstone, we're interested in life. We're interested in having life. And we believe that what Jesus says here is true. That if you believe these things, that you'll find life. And uh, John structures his book around these seven signs. And the raising of Lazarus from the dead was the seventh sign before the end of Jesus' ministry. And it's in the context of this sign, the raising of Lazarus that we find this story here in John chapter 12. See, after Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, uh, the effect was many more people were starting to believe in Jesus. We're told that in John 11. There's lots of new people that are believing in Jesus. And the chief priests and the Pharisees were beginning to become increasingly worried about this. It says they, they were worried that uh, as more people believed in Jesus, that he was the Messiah, they were worried the Romans would then start to be concerned the Jews were going to revolt. In the, in the chief priests and the Pharisees' mind, the Messiah was very much a person that would rise up and liberate Israel from the rule of the Romans. And so they're very concerned that people might think that Jesus is the Messiah, And the Romans are going to be worried about this. And so they're going to take away their freedom. They're going to, instead of the Jews having more freedom and having, getting closer to an independent Israel nation, they're worried 
the Romans are going to come down harder on the Israelites and take down more of their freedoms. And so because of this, it says in chapter 11, right after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, that they started to plot to have Jesus killed. And it's after this, resur- after this resurrection of Lazarus that the plan, the, the detailed plan of how are we going to get Jesus killed, it starts to take shape. And there were orders given. So they're scheming behind the scenes, and then there's public orders given that if anyone sees Jesus, they are to report that to the authorities. And so that Jesus could be captured. And so for three years, Jesus had been wandering around in, in the public, doing amazing miracles, teaching in the open. And now for the first time, Jesus has to really go into hiding because the attempts of his life are getting uh, more serious than ever before. And so Jesus leaves that place where he was raised from Lazarus, and he goes to a region near the, wild, near the wilderness. And you can see on the map, it's the town of Ephraim. And they put a question mark because they don't know exactly where it is there. But Jesus retreated from the public uh, traveling that he did. And he was essentially hiding with his disciples because of this threat that was on his life. And he was there for we don't know how long. But the festival of unleavened bread, which is a very important festival in the, in the nation of Israel and their history, was about to happen in Jerusalem. And this festival happens every year. And so Jesus, with his disciples, decided we're going to make our public appearance again. And they start traveling publicly for the first time in a number of weeks towards Jerusalem for this festival. Now, Bethany was a town, you can see it on the map, that was just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. It was a great place to wait until the festival was about to begin. And so um, Jesus goes to the home of his friends. We're, we're told in John chapter 11 that very specifically, in a, in a unique way, that Jesus loved Lazarus. He loved Mary. He loved Martha. They're all siblings. This family, this home that they live in, this family was very important to Jesus. And some commentators um, guess that it's, it's likely that this was a home that Jesus would often come to on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the festivals. It was something they did uh, often. Was the, the nation would gather at Jerusalem and, and celebrate feasts and festivals. And it's likely that Jesus would come to this home often because they were dear friends of his. And so it's in this setting that this story that we read this morning takes place. One of my favorite television shows is The Office. Some of you that just laughed are familiar with that show. Um, For those of you that don't know, it's a comedy documentary documentary, um, of the American office workplace, specifically at a paper company called Dunder Mifflin. And one of the main characters is Michael, and he is the boss of this office. And he's a sort of an awkward person who creates a lot of uh, tense situations. And uh, that's much of the comedy of the show, is these tense, awkward situations playing themselves out. One of my favorite episodes, one of my favorite scenes occurs in the episode Diversity Day. 
where Michael has to do some diversity sensitivity training with his employees. And he has the great idea to play a game that he's going to put a bunch of cards in a hat and on each one of those cards is a different race or ethnicity written on it. People would draw the card, put it on their forehead, and now they have to go walk around and by uh, acting out stereotypes of the race of the people that they see, that those people are trying to figure out who they are. And he encourages them to stir the melting pot. <laughs> stir the melting pot, he says. And he, of course, plays the role of Martin Luther King Jr., who is there to sort it all out. And this is a very, it's funny because there's so many tensions and there's so much awkwardness in the room. Um, there is a guy in the room who is black. He's the only black guy in the office and he got the black uh, race on his hand. And so people are trying to figure out how do I do a stereotype of this person and there's all sorts of other dynamics. There's another person in the room. She's the only other visible minority. She's Indian, East Indian. And Michael is sensing the game's not going over so well because people are feeling uncomfortable. And so he decides to get in the face of, of, uh, of, the, one, of the one of two people who is, actu- who is actually a visible minority in the group. And he starts confronting her and doing really racist, stereotypical um, things. And she eventually explodes, as any person would, and slaps him across the face and storms out of the room. And Michael's left trying to, and I think he says something like, you see, now she finally gets it. She knows what it's like to, to be treated differently. <laughs> but I was reminded of this show because the show plays off of building tension in a scene, creating all these awkward dynamics, these tensions, and then something happens. And the, I mean, in the show, it's funny, but... I know we can all have the experience of being in these situations where these, under the surface, there's all these tensions at play that are affecting how you're feeling and how people are interacting with each other. N.T. Wright, who is an Anglican theologian from the United Kingdom, he's widely regarded as one of the leading New Testament scholars. He makes this comment about this passage, about this story. He says... You can feel the tension crackling in the air. You can feel the tension crackling in the air. Now, when I read this passage for the first time to start preparing for this, I did not feel the tension. I don't know if you were feeling that as I read it here, or as you read along. I did not really feel that. I didn't notice that in the story. But as you peel back the layers of the scene you begin to see the tension that everyone must have been feeling in this room. And so what I want to do is I just want to take some time here to look at the different tension points that were going on in this room that we maybe don't catch at first reading. And so tension point number one, the growing number of attempts and plots to kill Jesus. So Jesus, this creates tension... Because people are starting to feel afraid. There would have been a general sense of fear in the room. You know, they had been in hiding because the the rulers of their nation were starting to plot to kill Jesus and, and probably those connected to Jesus. And they are essentially harboring a fugitive in their home. They've just made their first public appearance. 
And not only this, but people are starting to, they've already heard about it in the town and they're starting to gather outside, it says. But not only are they beginning to feel scared that Jesus may be captured, but along with that comes the fear that the thing they've been putting their hope in, remember, these are the disciples, these are the friends of Jesus that have, they've been putting their hope in this person for the last three years believing slowly more and more that what he's saying about himself is true. That he is the Messiah. Even though they still probably very much misunderstood what the Messiah meant. They were believing that he was the one. And so to have threats of this Messiah, this person they're putting their hope in, was going to die, was probably, most likely, starting to make them feel like a little bit of doubt. Have, have I been played a fool? And this is probably where the seeds of doubt get planted that come out eventually when Jesus is captured, when all his disciples flee. They flee when he's captured. And the seeds of doubt are probably already planted here that maybe this thing, this person, this idea that all my hope is slowly getting invested into is wrong. Because if Jesus dies, that's it. We're done. And so that would have been in the room. Not only are they scared for their own lives, but they're that, that sinking feeling, I'm foolish. I'm starting to doubt that Jesus actually is the Messiah. All the disciples must have been feeling this. And probably um, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, number two, as well. So tension point number two. Another layer in the room. The relationship between Martha and Mary. This is not the first time that we've met the sisters. They show up in Luke chapter 10. Jesus is in their home again. You may be familiar with the story. But uh, they're having a meal. And Martha is busy in the kitchen preparing a meal. And Jesus and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha eventually gets very frustrated. So frustrated that she says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? She says that to Jesus. Aren't you seeing that I'm doing everything here, Jesus? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, Jesus replied, you are worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will be not taken away from her. This is, the first, this is the, uh, the first time we hear about Mary and Martha, and this is what's happened. Now, I don't know a lot about women, but I would be willing to bet that that kind of interaction between sisters might create some tension. I don't know. I'm assuming a little bit here. But I'm guessing that, that that tension between the two sisters is present. Because the only mention of Martha in this passage is this. Martha served. And where's Mary? Doing this great act of sacrifice. Once again, she's pouring this perfume on Jesus' feet. And so I'm guessing there was probably some tension in the room between the sisters. 
Which leads us to tension point number three. Mary does this outrageous gesture. She anoints Jesus with this very expensive perfume. And then she wipes it with her hair. Now, it's a very costly gesture. It says it's worth the year's wage, which means that this is either a wealthy family or this is a, this is a family heirloom. Either way, it's a costly gesture, costly act of worship. And not only is it costly, but it's a culturally shameful act for a woman to let down her hair and to wipe Jesus' feet would have been, in that time, extremely shameful culturally. One commentator says this, it's roughly the same equivalent at a modern polite dinner party of a woman hitching up a long skirt to the top of her thighs. And so, whatever the equivalent is, it was people would have been kind of thinking to themselves, have she no shame that she would do this in front of us? And so the disciples are probably like all wondering, what, what are you doing? What's going on? Like, this is, you shouldn't be doing that. And that leads us to the awkward confrontation between Judas and Mary, where Judas, in all his righteousness, scolds foolish Mary for not considering the poor. Bethany was a town that meant house of the poor. I'm sure the poor were very present in that village. Why wouldn't she be thinking of the poor? Jesus talked a lot about the poor. Talked a lot about caring for the poor. Wouldn't this be really important to Jesus? And so this interestingly leads to the fourth layer of tension, which Jesus rebukes Judas. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. Now it's hard to know what the tone of that sentence was. Could have been harsh, could have been soft. Um, but I'm guessing it was probably on the harsher side, which I'll explain in a minute. But Judas says, it was intended that she save that, or sorry, Jesus says, leave her alone. It was intended that she save that for the day of the burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And Jesus calls out Judas essentially in front of everybody, which actually would have been surprising. Because we think of Judas, and as we read the story, we already know the end, where Judas betrays Jesus. But to them, on the other side of it, they didn't know that. In fact, they probably thought of Judas as a bit of a leader among the disciples. He was trusted with the money bag. It says a few times in the Gospels that he left the group and uh, takes care of the bills and then gives some alms to the poor. He would have thought, been thought of as a really humble you know, pious leader who is only considering the poor. It's only in retrospect that John writes in because he was a thief that he said this. But the disciples themselves would not have known this. And so it's hard, like I said, it's hard to know the tone of that comment, but we know this from another telling of the story in Mark, that directly after this uh, scene, Judas goes and meets with the chief priest to betray Jesus. That coming out of this little interaction, Judas leaves the house and goes to the chief priests and tells them, I want, to, I want to get Jesus to you. And so you have this scene. 
with lots of different layers going on in the room, tension building on top of each other. And I want to ask the question as we come to the end here, where do you think you are in the room? Where do you think you are? Are you in the kitchen with Martha? And I want us to consider this for today. Where are you now? Where is your heart today? Let's take a good, honest look in the mirror and let the Lord examine our hearts as we think about these things. Are you in the kitchen with Martha? You might say, what's wrong with being in the kitchen? You know, Somebody's got to take care of the food. And of course, if we're just talking about being a reasonable, responsible contributor to the home and being politely serving guests, then yes, that's a great point. But that's not what was bothering Martha. Martha was upset in Luke 10 and very likely upset here as well because she was doing all these things for Jesus and not getting the recognition she thought she deserved. There's nothing wrong with getting recognition, but if the reason we start to do things is for recognition, then we start to get ourselves into trouble. Because if that is the starting point, I want recognition, which is another way of saying, I want glory. If that's the starting point, if that's the motivation, the driving force that's get us, leading us to do things, then that's going to result in bitterness. Because it's either going to lead us to be bitter with ourselves or bitter with the people around us and probably ultimately bitter with God, or it's going to lead to tremendous pride because look how good of a job I'm doing and I'm getting this recognition. And so this morning, do you think it's possible that part of you or, or maybe a lot of you is in the kitchen with Martha saying, God, look at all these things I'm doing. You may not be thinking that out loud, but maybe you're really, you have a lot of bitterness in your life. And maybe that's actually the attitude of your heart. Or maybe you're at, at Jesus' side at the table with Judas. You know, Judas was doing a very good job at making himself look right, both in action and motivation. He's doing a really good job. But Judas had a secret. And it was the secret that he kept in the dark. And it grew, and it grew, and it ultimately took him to a place that he probably thought that he would never go to. He betrayed Jesus. He actually was the one that made it happen that Jesus would be crucified. For very little payoff. 30 pieces of silver was not very much. He was desperate because he had carried the secret in the dark for so long. I don't think that all of Judas' motivations were bad, but I think he had this secret and it grew in the dark until it overtook him and took him to a place he never thought he would go. And so this morning I ask you, are you at the table with Jesus but with a secret? You might have everybody in your life fooled. People at church, your wife, your husband, your kids, your friends. But you know it, and God knows it. And I hope you can hear the rebuke of Jesus before you get to the place that you never thought you'd go. Or maybe it's possible that you're here this morning and you're actually outside of the house with the chief priests. The chief priests and the Pharisees were threatened by Jesus, not so much because of the theological points that Jesus was making, although they took issue with that, but what was most 
threatening to them was that his teaching, if true, would threaten their idea of kingdom. They had an idea of what kind of kingdom was best for Israel. They were working towards it. They were protecting it. And if Jesus was who he said he was, that threatens the kingdom that they've been building for themselves. And so because of this, they would not see Jesus for who he actually was. And they began actively suppressing any evidence that would actually validate that Jesus is who he says he was. They even thought it was a good idea from their perspective that they should kill a man who'd been raised from the dead. Just think of where you have to be to be able to say, Jesus raised this guy from the dead. We got to kill him because there's no way that 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 could mean that Jesus is true. We have to protect the thing that we want to protect so desperately. And so what they didn't understand was that the kingdom that Jesus had in mind for them was actually far more vast and glorious and freeing than what they wanted for themselves. It was just a different kind of kingdom. And so this morning, if you're outside, maybe, if, that would, if that's where you'd say you are, I'm outside of the house, I'm sure there's lots of really good reasons while you're there. But maybe, just maybe, that there's evidence in your life that God's trying to tell you, I am. I am who I'm saying I am. And so I'd ask you this morning, would you stop again to listen and re-examine that Jesus might be who he says he is? Or finally, are you at the feet of Jesus with Mary? Mary is actually doing a very prophetic act here by anointing Jesus' feet with, bur- or Jesus with burial perfume, so close to his crucifixion, although she probably did not get this act that she was doing, probably doing more than she realized. This happens a few times in the Gospels. But what she did realize, though, was this, was this. Jesus was worthy of this level of sacrifice. She believed that. And then she believed that she needed to give Jesus worship regardless of how culturally shameful it was. She wanted to give him worship. I think many of us want to get to that place of worship of God, but shame has great power in our lives. You know, guilt is the feeling that I have done something wrong, but shame is the feeling that something is wrong with me. I believe there are two kinds of shame. There's true and false shame. And true shame comes when we have actually done something wrong, either before God or before each other. And, you know, shame is a correct response when we've done something shameful. It's, a, it's an appropriate feeling. And I think even Mary recognized this about herself. You know, if you look at the different accounts of the story, and it's in Mark and Matthew, if you go to those uh, Mark and Matthew accounts, Jesus is being anointed on the head. They, hi- they choose to highlight that, her, that she poured the oil on his head. It's likely she anointed his whole body, but they choose to focus on the head. And John, he focuses on the feet. And this would have been a humbling act. She probably had this uh, profound self-awareness of her own unworthiness. And so there is a good place for that if it leads us to a point. But false shame comes when we feel shame for something that God has already said, I have made you clean of. Or it comes when we're constrained by the culturally constructed shame triggers 
that exist both in Canadian culture and in Cornerstone culture. And we don't have the freedom of worship because we're feeling like something's wrong with me if I worship God like this. And I wonder if shame has a part to play and how free we are to worship God in this place. I believe that's false shame. And so, when we're not trusting in God's acceptance of us, we're prone to believe that. We need to rest in God's smile over us. His singing over us, as, it's, as we're told in Scripture. Because of what, not because of we're so great and not shameful, because of what Christ has done. And we're confined by the culturally, culturally constructed shame triggers that exist within our culture. We're not going to give God this kind of praise that Mary does here. And I think it could be the thing that's stopping us. And so it's possible that another reason John decided to highlight Mary pouring oil on the feet is that because in the very next chapter, the disciples and Jesus are reclining at a, at a new table. And feet are brought up again. But this time it's different. Jesus is not having his feet anointed. Jesus is not having his feet washed. Jesus says, I've come to wash your feet. And Peter, another one of Jesus' disciples, says, You shall never wash my feet, Jesus. And Jesus says this, Unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. And Peter then realizes, Then, Lord, if that's the case, not wash, don't just wash my feet and my hands, but my head as well. Wash all of me. That's the gospel. That Jesus has washed us. Jesus has anointed us. In the same way that he's anointed He offers that anointing to us. And not just our feet, but our head as well. We are free from shame. In Christ, we are free from shame. And Jesus is worthy of our worship. Pray, let's pray together. God, I ask that you would help us to to see this morning. Would you help us to see you clearly by looking at Jesus? We believe that Jesus is a full and complete revelation of what you're like, God. And so would you help us to see Jesus as you? And would, you see you, would we see you clearly, God? We know there's so many reasons in our life, there's so many experiences that are affecting the way that we see you. And so would you help us to see you clearly this morning, God? Would you help us to see ourselves this morning? Would you help us to see the idols of our hearts, the, the, the places where we go, God, in, in, a, in relationship to you, where we're, where we're letting shame control us, where we're letting fear control us, where we're letting guilt control us, God. And would you help us not only to see ourselves as our heart as they really are, but would you help us to see our hearts and ourselves as we truly are, and that is loved by you, honored, innocent, free, not because we're so great, God, but because of what Jesus has done. So God, would you convince us of this again this morning? Would you help us to see your great love for us, your great grace for us? We need your help in this, God. I pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.